You're listening to the Tri-State Community Church Podcast, a ministry of the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church located in the greater Pittsburgh metropolitan area. For more information, including service times, please visit us at facebook.com forward slash Tri-State Reformed Church. John 11 verse 45, we're going to read through verse 54. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what Jesus did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all. Nor do you understand that it's better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Jesus, therefore, no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim. And there he stayed with his disciples. Heavenly Father, we look to you this morning. We pray, Father, you'd be pleased to instruct us and guide us to open our hearts, Father, to your truth, to give us understanding of your truth, to help us, O Father, to make application of this truth, to align our lives with your truth. Give us, O Father, hearts that love your truth, who seek your truth, who pursue your truth, who live by your truth. Father, do this work, we pray for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, last week we spent a lot of time looking at what I think we might call the crowning jewel of all of Jesus' Miracles that he performs during his earthly ministry. I think it's safe to say it's the crowning jewel. In verse 1, we, we learn of a man who is ill. He, his name is Lazarus. He is a brother of Mary and Martha. It's a family that Jesus is indeed quite close to. Uh, I think we have every reason to believe they were a very well-to-do family, that they uh, probably undoubtedly, beyond uh, any doubt whatsoever, contributed to uh, Jesus' earthly ministry monetarily. We know Jesus had um, periodically had lunch with them, dinner with them in their home. And Lazarus falls ill. And uh, in verse 3, the sisters, that's Mary and Martha, send to the Lord, saying, He whom you love is ill. And when word gets to Jesus, Jesus is at some remote location. When Jesus gets word of it in verse 4, he says this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the glory of God may be glorified through it. And last week I spent a lot of time explaining that, that what is going on is God is about to pull, if you will, part of the veil of his glory away so that his glory may shine, um, that his glory may shine. And in his glory shining, uh, Jesus himself is going to be glorified by it. That's the purpose of this. In verse 5, we're told, again, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. And then verse 6 can be quite confusing. 
So when he heard, when Jesus heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. And we spent some time on that too, didn't we? It seems counterintuitive if Jesus loves Lazarus and Lazarus is on his deathbed, which is how we're to understand this uh, illness. Why would he delay? You would think that's the part where he gets busy and off he goes to Lazarus' side. Well, Lazarus indeed dies. In verse 14, Jesus comes out and says plainly, Lazarus has died. But then he says to his disciples, and this gives us a clue to the meaning of verse 6. He says to his disciples, for your sake, I'm glad that I was not there, so that you may believe. But let us go to him. And what do we learn from this verse? We get a piece of the puzzle from this verse. We see that this whole uh, event is... Uh, ordered by the providence of the Father so that he may be glorified through Jesus and that a byproduct of this entire exercise may be so that the disciples may believe. And we need to ask ourselves this question, are the disciples unbelievers at this point? And we asked that question last week. We, 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 we answered no. They've, followed, they've left everything to follow Jesus. They're following Jesus. But do they have it all figured out? Well, the answer is no. They don't have it all figured out any more than we have it all figured out. So what's the point? What is Jesus saying in verse 15? What Jesus is saying is in verse 15 is that the event that's about to take place is an event that's going to be used to strengthen their faith. That's what's about to happen. He is going to strengthen their faith. Now, in verse 17, Jesus makes his way near, near to Lazarus, only to discover Lazarus has been in the tomb four days. And in verse 19, we see the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. Another indication they're a well-to-do family. Presumably, people are coming up out of Jerusalem uh, to a prominent family to be there in their time of need. It's a beautiful picture, actually. Um, So you see it's very biblical to come alongside people when they're grieving. In verse 20, when Martha, she gets word that Jesus is coming, out she goes to meet him outside of the village. And in verse 21, first thing Martha says to Jesus, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. She's expressing uh, full confidence that Jesus could have taken the illness away if he would have been inclined to do so. Again, we could, we could, we could put a negative construction on this, but I don't think the context warrants that in any way. I think she's... Very happy that Jesus is there. Uh, she says as much um, in the next uh, verse, verse 22. Even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Uh, there she's, she's very much uh, finding consolation in Jesus' presence, finding comfort in Jesus' presence. We can make immediate application of that for ourselves, can't we? Especially when we come to prayer requests like we've lifted this morning. two sisters having problems with their kidneys. Well, how wonderful it is to have Jesus with you in that time. But when you have a a brother or a brother-in-law or a sister uh, who is really ill, how wonderful to have Jesus with you at that time. Now, Jesus says in verse 23, your brother will rise again. Martha 
Martha assumes that he's speaking of the resurrection in the last day. Verse 24, I know that he'll rise again in the resurrection in the last day, says Martha. And this is, a, as I said last week, at least I think I said last week, this is an issue that was hotly contested and debated. You had the Pharisees who believed in the resurrection of the last day. You had the Sadducees who did not. Many of the priests and chief priests were of the Sadducee uh, persuasion. So you had these, these two groups uh, arguing about this. We see that Martha was of the persuasion that there would be a resurrection on the last day, and correctly so. And she thinks that Jesus is making reference to that. But Jesus, in verse 25, he corrects her. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And Martha, and it's a real testimony to our sinfulness. And this is, when I say our, this is the church's sinfulness, that we often remember Martha as the one who's whining because Mary wouldn't help her serve. When Martha is the same one who makes one of the most glorious professions of faith in the New Testament. This is how we should remember her. We should quit remembering her from in her worst moment and remember her in her best moment. And I think this would be a good thing to practice from now on where everyone is concerned. Um, look at the profession of faith that she makes in verse 27. She says, yes, Lord, I believe that one, you're the Messiah, you're the Christ. Two, you're the Son of God who is coming into the world. Number three, in other words, he's the promised one. He is the Son of God. He is the Messiah. She fully believes he is the one. Extraordinary profession of faith that she makes. But it's a faith that needs to be strengthened. It's an extraordinary profession of faith, but it's a faith that is in need of being strengthened. Jesus calls for Mary. Martha goes to get Mary. Mary rises quickly. Verse 29 comes to Jesus. And um, in verse 31, Jews who were consoling her, they, they follow her, thinking she's going to the tomb. In verse 32, Mary comes to Jesus. When she saw him, she falls at his feet, saying, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. Same thing her sister had just said unknowing to her. Now, when Jesus sees her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And I pointed out last week this idea of being greatly troubled. And we should understand that, that Jesus actually is livid. He is irate. And that's, that's what's going on here. Uh, he's irate, and we would ask, well, what's he irate over? Well, the context is death, isn't it? He's irate over death, and it is death that he has come to destroy. And, of course, with death, you know, if we put death up here, death's a container, it's a box that has a whole bunch of nasty stuff in it, doesn't it? That would include unbelief. That would include um, sin. That would include rebellion against God. It would include all of that. And what we really wondered over, and I say wonder with an O, or what we marveled over, maybe is a clearer word, is, is that in the midst of Jesus' anger, he is compassion, compassionate. We're told that he weeps with them. And so much so that some of the Jews who were with them Commented, look how he loved him. In verse 37, they, they said, could not, he have opened, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind 
also have kept this man from dying. By the way, that's not a compliment. It's a, it's a disparaging comment that they make right there. Then verse 38, Jesus deeply moved again. We're to understand anger here. He comes to the tomb. There's a cave, a stone laid against it. He said, take away the stone. Martha objects. It's been dead for four days. Lord, there'll be an odor. You see, she doesn't understand. Look how Jesus, how tenderly he speaks to her. This is something we need to remember always when we come to Jesus and we don't understand. He speaks tenderly to us. He speaks tenderly to us. Did I not tell you that you believe, that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? It's almost like he's got his arm around her and said, listen, listen, in the midst of your grief, in the midst of your pain, what did I say? You believe you're going to see something extraordinary. You're going to see the glory of God. So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on the account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. See, there's that sent me again. You remember how I annoyed you so much just a few weeks ago saying, he sent me, he sent me, he sent me, he sent me, almost to annoyance. Here it is again. Now, what's the purpose of this? We go back to verse, what is it, 4. It's that the glory of God would be revealed and the Son of God would be glorified through it. Now, what specifically is that? That we would see that Jesus is indeed the one whom the Father has sent. See how the Bible interprets itself. Sometimes all you've got to do is just keep reading and you'll come to understand what's being meant here. What's Jesus do now? We know the story. What's he do now? Now he lifts up his voice with a loud voice. Be a mixture of compassion and anger. He says, Lazarus, come out. What happens? Lazarus comes out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with cloth. Jesus said, unbind him and let him go. And that brings us to our text this morning, verse 45, where we're told many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. Now, we have seen this over and over again in John's gospel where we come across this idea of believing in Jesus. Um, and we got a lesson all the way back in chapter 2 in regards to that, that not every time belief is made reference to here that it's always saving faith. And we could ask ourselves, well, I wonder if this is saving faith that's being expressed here. I'm inclined to think that it is, but I'm also inclined to think that it's going to be a mixed multitude because we're always a mixed multitude, aren't we? It's never like, I mean, in, in, in these kinds of things, we like to cut everything and make it nice and nice and neat and cut nice and neat, but life is not like that, is it? As we think about the Pharisees, we can say and make general statements about the Pharisees that they were A, B, C, and D, but we know in Nicodemus's case there were exceptions, and there probably were many other exceptions. I think because of the way verses 45 and 46 are placed with each other that we have a division here, we have a contrast here. Uh, I also think that uh, the idea of believed in him uh, is a, a kind of a reference to what Paul uh, uses when he says, and, and Christ throughout his writings many, many times. I forget how many times. I'm thinking maybe 50 times. Maybe it's more than that. My memory escapes me here. 
But over and over again, you read through Paul's letters and you'll hear this, in Christ, in Christ, in Christ, in Christ. Uh, Leon Morris actually has a um, uh, excursus, if you will, in his commentary where he deals just with that phrase, spends a couple of pages just dealing with that phrase, showing the resemblance of that phrase with Paul's words, uh, in Christ. I think that it's a, a pretty good argument. These are true believers for the most part in verse 45. And we could add to the purpose of this event. It's not only here to strengthen the faith of those who are already believing, but it's also here to cause those who are walking in darkness to believe. It's, con it's, it's, it's got a purpose of conversion, a purpose of transformation, if you will. I wonder how many people have been converted reading this story ever since this day. <laughs> Uh, maybe, maybe somebody will be converted today as a result of reading this story. Um, it's a powerful story. Verse 46, some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Now, what are we to make of that? Well, we could put a positive construction on it. We could put a negative construction on it. You know, over the last couple of weeks, we've been doing that because we've been finding a number of statements being made that we could do that with, and we were using the context to guide us in which direction we should go. The positive construction is perhaps some of the Jews who had saw what had happened were folks who were against Jesus until they saw this happen. And now they're going back to their buddies, the Pharisees, and they're saying, listen, um, we were with Martha and Mary. You've heard about Lazarus. And we were there um, at the funeral and we remained behind. They were grieving like you wouldn't believe. And Jesus showed up about the fourth day after he was buried, and he asked them to remove the stone. And with, by virtue of a command, Lazarus came walking out, and we had supper with him later that evening. And furthermore, we've had coffee with him, and he's as, he's as, he's as strong as a country horse. You really should consider reconsider your position with Jesus. That's, that's the best construction we could put on what's going on. And perhaps maybe there were a couple who, who came with that intention, but the context really speaks against that, doesn't it? The context really speaks about division. You know, when it comes to Jesus, there's always division. And that's probably undoubtedly what's going on, even if there were a few of uh, the Jews who tried to convince uh, the Pharisees. The overall thrust of this is they're ratting Jesus out. We know where he is. This is what he just got done doing. Um, division over Jesus. Verse 47, so the chief priests reacting to this and the Pharisees reacting to this, they gather, gather the council, that is the Sanhedrin, and said, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs. Now, there's, um, we can see in this there's a lot of anxiety and trepidation and almost silly irrationality, which we'll get to here in a few minutes, but we can see their boat is rocked, isn't it? What are we going to do? This man performs many signs. Notice, let us say this much before we move on, that they don't question the integrity of the signs. They were doing that with the blind man. They, were, they, 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 they launched an investigation. 
They went to the blind man. They interrogated him. They went to his parents. They interrogated them. They went back to the blind man. They were questioning the integrity at first. Here, no longer can they question the integrity of the miracles. These things happened. Uh, there's no question. Uh, there was all these witnesses. There was all the grief. There was all the crying. Lazarus was buried. Now you can go have coffee with him. You can knock on his door and he'll answer it. What are we going to do, verse 48, if we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. Now, what's going on there? Well, um, I can tell you how I would have typically explained this um, up until really this week in pondering over this and really working through this in preparation this morning. Um, I would have said they were, they were right, they're, they're right in one respect, that if Jesus keeps going on like this, it is going to bring the Romans down on them. I'm not so sure that's really true. That's the, that's the general thrust. I mean, if you read the commentaries and you listen to people talk about this, that's usually, the, that's usually what you hear in Longman. I'm not sure that's really true. But that's what they think, and it is a possibility. So they're holding that out. The Romans are going to come. They're going to take away both our place and our nation. Nation's easy enough to understand. What do they mean by place? Well, uh, probably the temple. I think that's the best explanation if you want to talk about geographical places or geographical structures. But there's more to it than that. They're worried about losing their place in society. These guys have really carved out a great niche for themselves. You know, they've got fancy clothes that they can wear. They've got fancy cars to drive. They've got big expense accounts. This is big business. People praise them when they walk around. They don't want to lose that. They don't want to give that up. I think that's chiefly and principally what's going on here. And then one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, that is, he was high priest the year Jesus is crucified. If memory serves me right, he's been high priest uh, since I think around 18, maybe eight, what we would call 18 AD. Don't hold me to that. But I'm thinking that's the case. About since 18. And one of the amazing things is Caiaphas actually holds on to that for a long time. It's a, at this point, it's a political place. He's a politician. You can see he's a politician just by uh, watch, what's he do here. Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all. And if someone says, you know, that really sounds like a boorish statement. It sounds like a callous statement. Sounds really, um, doesn't sound like it's very courteous. Well, you're onto it. It's not. You guys don't know nothing. Verse 50, you nor do you understand. It's better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. Listen to what he says. He's spoken like a real politician. Hey, this is better for you. It's all about you, isn't it? There's nobody in this council who wants rid of Jesus more than Caiaphas because there's nobody in this council who's got more to lose than Caiaphas. So he thinks. But it's better for you. Hey, it's better for you if we do this. How many times have we heard that? It's that hard. You don't have to listen very long to hear that, do you? The midterms are coming up. You're going to be hearing a lot of that. Same caliber of people. Same, 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 same. I don't make, mean that about everybody. I can't say that about everybody, but I'll tell you. Listen to the talk. 
It's all about you. It's all about you. Sure it is. It's all about us. That's, that's, that's right. All about us. It's all about you. It's better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say that, verse 51, of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. Yeah, Caiaphas is probably even unaware that the words that he is speaking are inspired words. You know, God not only speaks through a donkey, he speaks through Caiaphas too, doesn't he? He can use anything at his, at his disposal. And while Caiaphas is meaning all this for evil, God is meaning it for good. But what is Caiaphas' purpose? He's a very skilled politician. What is his purpose? He's a politician in the garb of a religious leader. And his purpose is to marshal everybody together to get them to do what he wants them to do. And he's successful in it. In verse 53, from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Verse 54, therefore, no longer, Jesus no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim. We do not know where this town is, although there are a number of candidates that are proposed. Um, and there he stays with his disciples. In other words, Jesus withdraws again from Jerusalem far enough away that uh, he's, for all practical purposes, he is safe from being hounded until the hour comes. But the hour is coming. It's fast approaching. It's fast approaching. Now, how are we to understand this passage? How are we to uh, begin to um, make application of this passage? One of the things I really wanted to show this morning is that the Bible is its own interpreter. We have commentaries in the Bible uh, if you have a Bible, you not only have a Bible, but you've got a bunch of commentaries in your Bible. And Psalm 2 provides commentary uh, on uh, what we have just studied, these verses right here. And I'll remind you, Psalm 2, verses 1 and 2, why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. You see the application there? The question is why? Why do they rage? Why do they set themselves against the Lord and against his anointed? Who's his anointed? His anointed is Christ, isn't it? Prior to that, his anointed would have been the kings, the, the Davidic kings, if you will, uh, who find their fulfillment in Christ. They're raging. They take counsel against them. Why do they do this answer? First answer we'll give is because they're under the sway and dominion of the evil one, and they share in his hatred of the Lord and his anointed. That's why they hate him. They hate him. The devil has his minions, and some of them wear fancy clothes. Some of them are in positions uh, of high positions in uh, religious establishments. Uh, we need to be mindful of that always. But let me pull this down a little bit because right now it's all outside. You know, we, um, it's not touching any of us. It's you know, it's that other guy. You know, it's not me. It's the, it's the other guy. Um, we need to pull this down because this actually shines a little closer to home. Let's ask it again. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? Why do the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, his anointed being the Lord Jesus Christ? Why do they do this? Answer is because in their eyes, the world is more attractive than Jesus. The world is more attractive than Jesus. That pulls it down, doesn't it? Because we know that tension, don't we? We know how weak we are 
and how susceptible we are to fall into that. When this sin's brought into the church, it looks like what we have in verses 45 through 54. It's not pretty. When this is brought into the church, it looks like that in miniature, but it still looks and smells like that, and it's not pretty. Um, the situation is much more heinous than the world because there's far more light at their disposal. Let's think about that for a moment. Caiaphas is the high priest. As high priest, and this is still the Old Testament economy right now that we're studying, because Jesus has not ratified the new covenant in his blood yet, has he? He still has yet to go to the cross. So there is a high priest who actually is between the people and the Lord who will go once a year into the holy place to offer atonement for the people. Caiaphas is the guy who stands between the Lord and the people. He's turned this into a worldly position, and he loves his worldly position more than he loves anything else. This is uh, it's ugly, but let's think about how heinous this is because of all the light. Does he know his Bible? Of course he does. He has a Bible at his disposal. Does the, does the, the heathen down the road from Caiaphas, does he have all this light? No. When you think about how much more guilty, how much more guilty are these sins when they're committed inside the church than when they're committed outside of the church, how much more guilty it is. Now, this text that we have this morning, here, here we see all of these people pushing against Jesus, pushing against Jesus, pushing against Jesus. And our text this morning offers five things which show the foolishness of doing that. And the first, if you look back with me again to verse 47, the first is a loss of courage. Look what they say. They said, what are we to do? They've lost courage. What are we to do? What are we to do? The Pharisees, the high priests, the council are worried about what they think the Romans will do? There's a loss of boldness. Leviticus 26.36 teaches the faintness of the wicked. The wicked flee at the sound of a driven leaf. They flee when no one pursues them. Mind you, when we think of wicked, in biblical categories, unbelief is wickedness. A lot of times I think when we think about wicked, we think, well, those are the, those are the terrorists. Those are, uh, uh, those are uh, murderers. No, in biblical, ter- in biblical categories, those are unbelievers. And they flee when no one chases them. They're, they flee at the sound of a driven leaf. Calvin was really fond of that phrase. He quoted it all the time. He would say this, they flee over the sound of a rustling leaf. You ever read Calvin? You don't have to read Calvin very long before you'll read that phrase. I was just devotionally reading a little bit out of Institutes last night just just because I like it. And I didn't read very far before he used that phrase. They flee at the sound of a rustling leaf. Why? They have no security. There's nothing, there's no security. They're full of anxiety. That's what's going on in our culture. Our culture is becoming increasingly anxious. Why? Because God is being increasingly pushed out of it. That's, that's, that shouldn't surprise anybody. That's what, we'll, that's what we should expect to always happen under those circumstances. So here we see the foolishness of resisting Jesus. It's a loss of courage if we go down that street. But it's also a loss of rationality. It's hard not sometimes to laugh. If it wasn't that this is so serious, we could giggle and laugh about it. But look at verse 47. 
They say, what are we to do for this man performs many signs? I mean, think about how irrational that statement is. What are we to do for he performs many signs? (laughs) Well, follow the signs. What are the signs demonstrating? See, signs always point to something, don't they? Tammy and I, on Memorial Day, Tammy saw this waterfall online she wanted to go see, and she saw that it was up near Slippery Rock somewhere. I'm like, all right, let's go. So we drive all the way up, slip, up near Slippery Rock, up in the middle of the woods out there someplace, and we couldn't find a sign anyplace. And we drove around up there looking for this place as long as it took us to get up there. And my sciatica is starting to bother me from sitting in the car. I'm thinking, we're like, oh, let's go ahead, and we decide we're going to turn home return home, and we went a different way than we came, and we happened to just drive past the place. We were looking for a sign. We didn't drive up there to see a sign. We drove up there to see what the sign pointed to, right? What is the, what is the sign here? They're suppressing the sign that clearly points to life. The sign, the sign demonstrates here that they're worried about the Romans, the, the Romans are not their greatest enemy. You know, lack of health care is not our greatest enemy or our greatest problem. Economics is not our greatest problem. Whoever's in the Oval Office is not our greatest problem. Our greatest problem is death. They're worried about the Romans. Jesus has just clearly demonstrated that he is sovereign over death. He has just demonstrated that he can tell death to let its captive go. Simply by speaking, he can give the word, and death lets go of Lazarus, and Lazarus comes out. And so does the illness, by the way. Comes back healthy. Death is at his beckoning. Death is under his feet. And they're worried about the Romans? He can save them. You see how irrational this is. Look at it again with all this in mind. What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. It's almost humorous, isn't it? What are we to do? His signs prove he is exactly who he says he is. Sleaze, you know, when we go down this street, it leaves us unable to reason and think. I mean, when when people go down this road, they they lose rationality. And you don't have to look hard in our our society to see that. I don't know if any of you have had the the unpleasurable experience of trying to rationalize with someone who is continually rejecting these things to the point that you, you try to reason with them and you cannot reason. Has anybody ever had to try to do that? You can't. You can't reason with them. You, you, you just can't. That is the consequence of this. You lose, the, you lose the ability. When people go down this road, they lose rationality. We see this everywhere. I mean, listen to the news. Any night, any time, it's always the same. I don't care. Tonight it'll be like that. Tomorrow night it'll be like that. The next night, you can listen to it every night you want. It's always going to be like that. Irrationality expressed in statements like settled science. Really? I mean, what's in it for a scientist? If I was a scientist, what would be in it to me is the chase of the discovery. 
to discover that something that we believe today isn't really exactly right and to learn more about it so that we could modify what we believe today. In other words, we could change what we believe today. Isn't science always changing? Isn't that the point? Eggs are good for you. Eggs aren't good for you. Eggs are bad for you. Eggs are good for you. Ah, the egg whites are good for you, not the yolk. Ah, it's okay. You can eat the yolk. Coffee's good for you. No, it's not good for you. Oh, coffee. That's settled? <laughs> what is settled? Or Mother Nature. You'll hear that all the time. We could go on. Senseless calamity. I've got a couple written down here. You could. It's irrational. We need to move on. Now, their unrealistic estimate of their ability and strength and power. Pushing back against Jesus leads us to be increasingly proud and unrealistic of our ability, strength, and power. Where do I get that at? Look at verse 48. Notice what they say there. If we let him go on like this, <laughs> if, if we let him go on like this, see how easy it is just to read past that and not think about that for a moment? If we let him go on like this, uh, who? The guy that just called Lazarus out of the tomb? Isn't he the same guy that gave sight to the blind? Isn't he the same guy that calmed the Sea of Galilee when it was storming? Yeah, him. If we let him go on like this, you see how silly that is? Here is a, it, 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 it is an unrealistic opinion of human potential. And again, we'll see this everywhere. I mean, while so many people are cowering in fear over everything today, while, so, while, while anxiety increases at every corner, there's a constant trumpet of human strength, achievement, and power being sounded at the same time. Again, turn on the news. Tonight, tomorrow night, next night, any night you want, it's always the same. It's going to be fear, 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 fear. And then it's going to be some expression of great human achievement in the midst of this fear. Unrealistic. We're going to save ourselves. We're going to save uh, through education and science. We're going to save ourselves. This is unrealistic. We just got done praying, which the prayer requests that we take, don't they demonstrate how frail we are? Fourthly, they seal the destruction they attempt to escape. Look at verse 50. What's Caiaphas a matter? What's he, what's he on about? He doesn't want to lose his place. So what's he say? It's better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. So in his estimate, in his estimate um, being worried about losing his place, he marshals the group to be in one accord to kill Jesus. So, in essence, what Caiaphas believes is this. When Jesus is gone and done away with, my future looks better. My future looks better. My welfare looks better. Things look better for me if Jesus is done away with. I would submit to you that's a common attitude. It's the attitude of unbelief. It's just the attitude of good old-fashioned unbelief, isn't it? Because what unbelief says, listen, if I have Jesus meddling with my life, well, then my future looks bleak. I can't do all the things I want to do. So if I get rid of Jesus, then everything looks pretty good. Well, 
How does that work out for Caiaphas? Within three years of this event, Caiaphas and Pontius Pilate both are defrocked. And within about 35 years, the Romans do come in and destroy Jerusalem. And they destroy the temple, as Jesus said they would. They completely destroy it. And they lose their place. The sacrificial system is no more. The idea of a man being between the people of God and God is no more, save the God-man, Jesus Christ. Amen? There is no pastor who's between the people and Christ. There is no other between us and Jesus. Right? He lost his place. So they seal the destruction that they attempt to escape. You follow me on that? Is everybody okay? They think their happiness is better without Jesus, but without Jesus, it's, they seal their destruction. Lastly, I'll be very brief with this one, evil policy. This is an evil policy that, that uh, Caiaphas is recommending here. It's an evil policy. Notice what he says. It's better for you that one man should die for the people than not the whole nation should perish. It's an evil policy. We're used to evil policies, aren't we? That good's going to come out of an evil policy? Well, God can make good come out of this. But we're not God. And the fact that God makes good out of this does not lessen the culpability of the people who suggest this, nor the people who carry it out. One of the Puritans said something like this, uh, carnal policy, which is steered wholly by secular considerations, which seek to save all with sin or by sin, at the end ruins everyone at last. It's a paraphrase, rough paraphrase. I'll, I'll, I'll see if I can say it again. Carnal policy, which steers wholly by secular considerations, which attempts to save all by sinning, in the end ruins all at last. That is 100% of the time. As we look at all of the evil policies that are... Uh, put out there and embraced and the justifications for all these evil policies, in the end, they're going to bring ruin. Not 50% of the time, not 75% of the time, 100% of the time. It might not be today. It might not be tomorrow. It might not even be next week or next year. But unless it's retracted, it will happen. Uh, guaranteed. Guaranteed. I never like to end on this kind of a note. I don't want to wrap us up and close now, although some of you might say, Rick, it is time to wrap up and close, and I get that. But could we close on a positive note? The wisdom of embracing Jesus. We've looked at the folly of resisting him. What about the wisdom of embracing him? Well, anxiety is emboldened. And cowardice is taken away, and we become bold. That's what happens to the disciples, isn't it? They're emboldened upon the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Irrationality is made rational. Our minds get renewed as we embrace Jesus, doesn't it? The, unre the unrealistic is brought into reality. We begin to see how frail we are. We begin to see how sinful we are. We embrace Jesus to save us. We begin to understand what we truly are and been brought into reality. Destruction is spared. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are the resurrection. We thank you that you are the life. 
Oh, Father, we thank you and how good it is to be in you, oh, Father, this morning. Father, we pray you'll press these things upon our hearts, Father, as we see the complete irrationality and the foolishness of pushing back and resisting you. We see the proudness that, that uh, comes from that, Father, where we unrealistically look at our own abilities and expectations, Father. Um, Lord, we see that evil policies are never going to bring about good, O oh, Father, as we enact those things. Although, Lord, you may decide to bring good for your kingdom in the midst of those things, and you do, you do work together for the good for all who love you. But, O oh, Father, for the society at large, it's never a good purpose. It's never a good an idea. So, oh, Father, we thank you for these things. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.